Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Menashe. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Silicon Valley. Welcome to the show, my good friend, Neil Bawa. Thanks for having me back on the show. It's always, uh, it's always fun to uh, learn new things about what's happening in the world of the economy from you. It's great to have you here. It's been far too long since we connected, and my gosh, so much has changed. For the folks who haven't met you yet, maybe take a moment, give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey, and I know we got lots to talk about today. Sure. I'm um, a nerd, a geek, um, a data scientist by profession, computer science by uh, degree, and um, I am basically interested in using large numbers or law of large numbers to hack real estate in every way that I can, hence the moniker Mad Scientist of Multifamily. Yeah, I love it. So you're playing this game at a fairly high level. You're an investor both in apartments, you do some development of apartments as well in multiple markets, and you've built a fairly large ecosystem around that. And obviously a lot has changed since you were last on the show. We've had a tremendous pullback in so many different respects. Things that made sense a year ago don't quite pencil today with the increase in interest rates, with rent growth plateauing, some of the demographic movements that we were seeing around the nation come to a screeching halt. A number of things have changed. Let's start with what are you seeing right now that is giving you pause in today's market? A growing gulf between buyer and seller expectations, both in the single family and in the multifamily market. So I, I see that on both sides. It's actually the gulf is expected to continue on the single family side because most people who own single family homes, whether they're investors or owner occupiers, have 30 year fixed loans. And so there just doesn't seem to be a lot of incentive to sell uh, if they don't absolutely have to. So I expect that that gulf, even though it's shockingly wide, is expected to stay there for a while because it take, it's taking an extremely long time for there to be any traction on that. Uh, that's not the case for multifamily because we had such an incredible number of properties sell in the US in 2020, 2021, and early 2022 that we are going to start seeing a forced you know, reduction in that gulf. Um, you know, at this point, I, I'm i penciling properties at 16 or 17% below the price the broker wants us to offer. And they probably won't get that price, but they'll probably get, you know, halfway from my price to, to their price. And that just doesn't make any sense to me. So I think we have extraordinary mispricing of risk and extraordinary mispricing of properties, especially on the commercial side. And that's true beyond multifamily. I'm also seeing industrial and self-storage um, mispriced as well. Hotels are actually the only asset class that I think are, are well-priced at this point in time. But I think the rest of them are, there's severe problems and, and they're coming because most people think that we are maybe a third or half of the way into this process. And I think we're a third of the way in. Um, so I think almost all of the problems in the sector are in front of us. I would agree with that. In fact, I was speaking with a loan originator yesterday who was saying that from his perspective, a lot of loans that he was expecting to get done were, in fact, his competition is seller financing, where the seller is trying to protect their price and they're offering seller financing in order to protect their price. So the price discovery that we would expect to be happening in the market, that false sense of value is being perpetuated by a lot of seller financing. It is, and, and for a certain amount of time, I think that that's going to fall apart in the coming five or six months here. There's a multiple reasons for that. One is 
the CMBS lending market is effectively non-existent, doesn't exist. There's $6.8 billion of CMBS loans coming due and CMBS has no intention of refinancing any of them. So, and when I looked at that portfolio, Bottom line is 80% of those properties are unrefinanceable. They cannot be refinanced without addition of, let's call it four or five, six million dollars of equity. These are mostly properties in the 20s to $40 million range. The amount of equity that's needed to refinance them is so massive that maybe one in five, maybe one in 10 will get to that point where they add that much equity. I don't know where they're going to get it from. I think the rest of them have to go back into the market and that needs haircuts for investors. And CMBS is still a small portion of the marketplace, right? So I'm doing a presentation about this. And the first slide of the presentation, Victor says that approximately 40% of all multifamily properties purchased by the syndication segment, not throughout the US, but just by the syndicators in the last three years are going to be underwater by April 1st and are going to be severely underwater by July 1st, because we still have three more quarter point hikes to come. And being underwater for a small amount of time is no big deal. You have operating reserves, you have general partners that put money in. It's not. It's simply not a problem. But each month that goes by, if you are 50 or $100,000 underwater, gets worse and worse and worse. And then your lender starts to notice, you know, six months of you being underwater, the lender basically makes that first phone call And I can tell you that first phone call is not fun and it just progressively gets worse from there. I share that perspective and a very large percentage of those deals that were done over the last couple of years were done with bridge debt, bridge debt, hoping to refinance into permanent financing. In fact, with the supply chain shortages, a lot of these deals didn't get completed. A lot of these construction projects didn't get completed. And the only thing that saved them was the rising tide where we had such tremendous rent growth that that wall papered over the problem. But now they're going to either need to refinance into permanent financing at a rate that's far higher than anything they would have imagined. They're going to maybe try and extend with an extension as far as that will get them. But at a certain point, they are stuck. They are going to need, like you said, to take a huge haircut or write a massive check in order to get into permanent financing. Right. So that's really the big question. You know, When does this happen? When does that massive haircut start to happen? I don't think it happens in Q1 at all. I, I still see properties holding strong at this point. Uh, you know, you, you still have to put hard money down on day one to buy a multifamily property pretty much anywhere in the US. So it's very early in that process. But I think Q3, because I think by the time the Fed reaches what I believe is the peak in, in July, so three more interest rate hikes of quarter point, that's when the distress starts to build because you've, you've now been negative for a while and your lenders are getting you know super nervous. I expect that Q4 of this year and Q1 of next year are going to be very interesting to watch. I can't predict what happens, but we could develop contagion in the multifamily space. Contagion is so deadly that it basically all lending stops because during contagion, nobody will lend any amount of money, even to a property that nothing is wrong. They simply stop lending because they're afraid of contagion, right? So we have the possibility of contagion, though it, the window for contagion, I think, is pretty short for Q1. Beyond that point, I do expect that options will develop in, in the space, but it's going to be very rough in that Q4, Q1 timeframe. Many of the lenders that I've spoken with in the past week are echoing a similar sentiment looking past to 2024 and 2025 saying, you know, everything's going to be just fine, but man, this year is going to be rough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think this is a 15-month window, not counting this quarter. So we're recording this in Q1 of this year. I think if you get through the next five quarters, you're going to see some benefits. 
we are seeing a very, uh, in, at this point in, in Q1, we're seeing multifamily new construction activity slow down. It didn't slow down much last year. So we, we, we were still doing pretty well, but then there was kind of an abrupt slowdown at the beginning of this year in terms of financing, which means that 2025, we will have a shortfall of both single family new construction homes and multifamily new construction homes. And single family, they get built faster. So there's actually going to be a shortfall in the second half of 2024 as well. So if you get to 2025, you're going to benefit from some rent growth that's going to come your way simply because there's not enough properties being delivered in 2025. I think 2023 deliveries are going to be astonishingly strong and are going to, to really play havoc with rent growth. I think 2024 deliveries, the first half is still going to be strong. The second half is going to be weak. And then 2025 is definitely going to be very weak for deliveries. And that's where the opportunity is for, for people that have properties at that point to get some lost rent growth back. The market seems to be obsessed with speculation on interest rates, what's going to happen, inversions, the Fed pivot, and so on. And we've seen, for example, the 10-year Treasury, which is really, that sets the floor for permanent financing, raise 50 basis points in the last couple of weeks. So some of that interest rate inversion has narrowed. What's your perspective on spreads? So a lot of people are not paying attention to the spreads at this point simply because the bridge market, which uses these kinds of spreads, is effectively dead for the moment. I think that's a mistake. I think that what I would say is this. I'm not interested in buying any properties in the, anywhere in the U.S. at this point in time because they don't pencil for me. But I would love on July 1st to be in contract on properties that I like, and I'd probably be in contract on multiple properties. And I want to buy as many extensions as I can and basically buy those properties in December because of the spread, right? So there's two components to, to bridge deals. There's a SOFR component, which basically represents the 10-year treasury or the Fed funds rate, whichever one you you, you know prefer. I, th- I think it more represents the Fed funds rate. So yes. everything on top of that is, is, the, is the spread. Uh, everything on top of that is the risk premium, right? That, that banks have, and usually banks work with one and a half percent as a risk premium. Sometimes they work with 2%. Right now, those risk premiums are four or five. And those risk premiums have nothing to do with interest rates. They have everything to do with simply no one knowing where the Fed stops. So uncertainty is the is the last two points. It's not the interest rate because the interest rate is the bottom portion. The SOFR portion is already the interest rate. So the top portion is really representative of uncertainty. So I think it needs to go down to 2%. I think it's at 4 You could see that that decline in spreads happen in the October, November timeframe if the Fed stops in July. I don't know if that's actually going to happen, because if you look back over even the last couple of years, if you look at bridge debt, you would have seen loan terms being written as SOFR plus four and a half with a floor, but because SOFR was effectively zero, it didn't really come into things. You were always hitting the floor no matter what. So the spreads, I don't think the spreads have actually even changed over the last eight or 12 months. What's happened is that floor has risen, and so now we're starting to see see that rate float, whereas before you wouldn't see it at all. I agree. I agree. But what's happening is that there's a little bit of double dealing going on here because banks actually do take a piece of the of the SOFR portion as well, right? So it's it's not commonly understood, but they've got some money in there as well. So now they're basically, they're, the risk premium, they're putting some money in there and they're also putting some money on their SOFR side, 
right? And for the moment, it's okay because the banks want to be super conservative. Nobody knows where the Fed's going to stop. You know, certainly all past speculations have not proven out proven out to be true. Most Goldman Sachs thought the Fed would stop at four. Well, we're way past that. You know, Merrill Lynch thought they would stop at 3.75. That was only seven months ago. So obviously a lot of people have been wrong on this. And so they don't want to take any kind of risks. I, I do believe that when you've got so for this high, you don't need a spread over 2% to function and to account for your risks once the, the Fed basically plateaus. So am I saying it will go down to 2% at that point? No, I'm, what I'm saying is it has room to go down from four plus. I mean, we're even seeing 5% spreads at this point in time, which make buying anything impossible and makes the bridge market basically simply not exist. I think it comes back into existence at that point in time for a number of assets. But by next year, I think you should see a significant activity in the bridge market. So if we can get past this year, maybe get past Q1 of next year, then you see significant activity from a bridge perspective. And I think the reopening of the bridge market allows the multifamily market to stabilize. Well, the other part is not just the rate, of course, it's what's the loan to cost or the loan to value threshold that lenders are willing to go to. Historically, they were fairly aggressive. They were going 75, 80. Some were even doing stretch seniors up to 85. Today, I'm hearing numbers in the 60s or even the 50s. So that's the other way that they're mitigating risk is by making sure that they're sitting on a ton of covering equity. They are. And and I think they're doing the right thing at this point in time. They should be doing exactly what they're doing. But to point this out, I mean, a lot of the market underwrites multifamily properties, a lot of the lenders use DSCR, that's, you know, service coverage ratio. At any point in time, if your interest rate goes down, it becomes easier for lenders to go from 55 to 60 or 60 to 65, because in the end, that one number affects everything and a lower interest rate gives, you know, lenders more room. I can tell you lenders are extremely eager to lend. They just don't have the ability to lend at this point of time. So they, they, this isn't a liquidity crisis at all. It's simply a crisis of interest rates being far too high for that liquidity that's available in the market to be tapped. And I, so I think that when we get to the point where there's a little bit of a give, we'll, we'll see what happens. I, I still very strongly believe that the Fed will do more than it's supposed to. And then be forced to cut rates uh, maybe in either the Q4 of this year or Q1 of next year, probably Q1 of next year. Yeah, I think there's a strong sentiment that they don't want to repeat the false start that happened in the 1970s, where they thought they'd stamped down inflation, pulled back a little bit, and then really experienced runaway inflation. And they're exactly. really very concerned about that. They would rather suffer a downturn than experience runaway inflation. I can't argue with that. I mean, to me, to be honest, that downturn ironically does have some benefits for the multifamily world because it will bring that gulf between buyer and seller expectations to a, a more reasonable level because the market's unreasonable at this point of time and downturns affect everyone's mindsets. And so you, you've got you know buyers that are now willing to accept something knowing that, okay, well, the economy is now in a recession. I don't think I'm going to get a better price in the next six months. So if I need to sell, I might as well sell and move on. There are benefits of downturns. I mean, we, we often talk about recessions being a, a clearing house for poor quality companies and things like that. Well, this time it's going to be a clearing house for uh, mismanaged properties or properties that are uh, highly over leveraged. So there's some good news with the bad news there. And and I, I if I was a Fed, I wouldn't pull back at this point because I'm very afraid of what happens to oil prices in the second half of the year. Um, so I think that there's there's just food and oil are both looking to go up in the second half of the year. Analyst after analyst is warning us. 
And so the Fed's like, let you know, let's overshoot, but definitely let's not undershoot. You know, if you undershoot and then end up with expensive food, expensive oil, then you end up with runaway inflation, and then it's then it's anchored. Boy, it's extremely difficult to unanchor uh, inflation expectations. Well, at that point, you are into stagflation, and frankly, even tampening demand by raising interest rates doesn't solve the problem. It's like fighting a fire with gasoline. It's it's not solving the problem. Exactly. But I think a Fed at this point has a chance. They've got a chance of killing inflation. I don't think they have a chance of you know preventing a recession. And and it's very clear which way they're going to go. They're they're going to go a little bit over, and which means that they will have to end up cutting interest rates so they don't sit on a plateau for a while because they've achieved perfection. It's just right. And I'm going to sit there for nine months. That never happens. They're going to go over and then they're going to come back down. So you're basically saying pencils down for the time being, wait until things normalize, wait till we see a little bit of stability, and then find a better entry point to jump back in. Yeah, I, I don't think that at this point I want to put anything in contract until July 1st. You know, I want some expectation change. And it's happening, Victor. I, I see cap rates adjusting now on a monthly basis Yes. Uh, because the way that brokers are talking, especially loan brokers, but also selling brokers are talking to buyers has changed. It definitely has changed from four or five months ago. All of the, the hoopla, the nonsense that people are spouting has gone out of the market. So it's much more realistic. The conversations are better. So I see prices falling every month. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next four months, we see a decline in prices by between five and $7,000 a door per month. Hmm, interesting. Well, Neil, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Um, I'm luckily the only Neil Bawa on the World Wide Web. So, you know, N-E-A-L space B-A-W-A, just hit enter in Google. You'll find uh, lots of information about what I'm up to. If you'd like access to our webinars, we do about 20 webinars that talk about the economy, talk about multifamily and other interesting things like climate change or, you know, deglobalization. Those are all stored at multifamilyu.com. That's multifamily followed by the letter u.com. About 26,000 people watch those webinars every year. So you're welcome to connect with us through multifamilyu.com. Fabulous. Well, Neil, love the perspective. It's great to catch up. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Neil Bawa on social media or check out multifamilyu.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs> 